0: We were just walking down a hallway, and Gilbert Gottfried was just sitting having a drink at the bar by himself. And she stopped and said to him, like, oh, I've always wanted to meet you. And uh, he said, like, oh, that's very nice. And then he looked at me and said, have you always wanted to meet me, too? And I had no idea who he was. <laughs> so I said, sure.
1: <laughs> Action. Welcome to Cinema Splash Page. I'm Michael Brody, your host, occasional published author, and full-time runner of a show I call The Best Damn Trivia in Montreal. You can find me asking some very silly questions every Sunday night at 8 p.m. at a place called Grumpy's Bar in downtown Montreal, Quebec. My guest today is Molly-Ann Rothschild. Molly-Ann has, over the last 30 or so years, worked in a great many fields. She has answered phones at a mutual fund company, helped operate a nurse's uniform store, dabbled in childcare owned a yarn store, and finally wound up becoming a nurse-clinical research coordinator in the field of infectious disease. But somewhere between all of these jobs and careers, she worked in the Canadian film industry, doing multiple jobs, which includes working as an assistant director on the second season of Ridley and Tony Scott's anthology TV show, The Hunger. Molly Ann, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, You have several degrees from two very distinguished colleges. Why don't you at least mention these before we jump into all this TV and film stuff?
0: Sure. Uh, My very first degree um, is from McGill in Religious Studies. So that was super useful. Uh, Then I went on to do my first half degree, which was in Theatre Design at Concordia University. Years later, I went back to Concordia and actually was able to use those Theatre Design courses towards uh, my English Lit degree. Um, which was a bachelor's. So that's two bachelor's degrees. And then um, I did half of a master's degree in English literature that never got finished. Um, And then I eventually went back and did a master's degree in nursing. So that's a science degree. Uh, So master's degree applied uh, in nursing at McGill.
1: McGill is a cool school. And you know how I know that? Because the guy on house had a t-shirt that said McGill. (laughs) uh, Sorry, sweatshirt. Robert Sean Leonard had a sweatshirt he was always wearing. True. Which, to be fair, because I live right near McGill, was one of the first clues I ever had that, oh, is this school prestigious? I thought it's where all my dumb friends went.
0: Uh, It depends on the (laughs) department. Apparently. Yeah, the medical school's pretty good. I will say that.
1: So in between all of these jobs and schooling and uh, quite a myriad of interesting life, you worked in the Canadian film industry. Sure did. And you wore several hats. Tell us a few of your jobs or job titles
0: well my very first job in film was working for a talent agent locally Um, i started working part-time to cover one of my friends i used to work um, when i was at mcgill the first time i worked with uh, the theater sports people never performing and one of those people worked at this talent agency and she was offered a role in a play so i went in uh, and started covering for her part-time and then that sort of parlayed into a full-time job And then uh, after that, I went and worked on sets real briefly. And then after that, I worked for ACTRA, which is some of you will know is the, uh, gosh, what does it even stand for anymore? The Alliance of Canadian Television and Cinema and Radio Artists, something along those lines. Uh, So while I was at ACTRA, you can find these online, which is how Michael knows about them. Uh, I worked with Robin Baruchel, who is Jay Baruchel's mom. And uh, we used to do these stage parent workshops. So she published a little book on being a stage parent. And uh, then she went on to write a guide to doing nudity in film, which I, I helped her with. She's she's the credited author, but uh, I was the one who was on set having the miserable experiences with the naked people. So, <laughs> so yeah.
1: My uh, my favorite thing about the um, this this article, which I did find online, uh, what is it called? It's called the Nudity in Film Survival Guide: The Naked Truth About Nudity in Film and Television is some of the headlines of some of the, the short pieces. And my favorite one is, should I do nudity? That's, that's one of them. There's there's a lot of information in this 15 or 16 page document, none of which probably applies today because of intimacy coordinators. That's the new thing. Ew. Yeah, that's the new job title. and uh, But th- this is a pretty concise document that asks all of the questions that the actors should ask themselves of should I even be auditioning for things that tell me I will most likely have to do nudity. And it gets into the legalities and all kinds of things. The
0: whole point is really that you should have these conversations before you end up on set. So as soon as you, you know, agree to accept the role, that's when your agent should be negotiating with the production company as to what you're going to be doing. That way, when you arrive on set, you don't have to be the bad guy. It's already been negotiated, uh, and you have an idea of what you're supposed to do. Um, That said, producers will still push you to do stuff you don't want to do, because that's the nature of the game, which is one of the reasons I don't work in film anymore.
1: Well, you're also credited in some capacity, uh, when you Google your name, you're credited in some capacity with another document called The Stage Parent Survival Guide, Mm -hmm. which is written by Robin Barishel. Uh, what In what way did you ever have anything to do with the Stage Parent Survival Guide, or just the concept of dealing with parents who are awful enough to put their children in film and television?
0: Uh, often those kids want to do it, uh, so it's really giving the parents some tips and tricks as to how to get by and what's, uh, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, what's normal, what's not normal, um, so... You know, when I worked at after, I was a, a union steward. So my job was to make sure that the terms and conditions of the collective agreements were upheld. And of course, there were rules and regulations around working with minors just the way there are anywhere. Uh, in L.A., of course, they have a whole set of actual laws. In Canada, not so much. It's really up to the unions. At least it was back when I was working for them. So uh, it was really useful for the union to have these workshops with stage parents to let them know you know, what not to do, <laughs> what to do. Um, yeah, and also to a certain degree for the kids, you know, to know what was okay for them to do and what wasn't okay for them to be asked to do.
1: All right, well, that's, uh, that is a lot of stuff that you have been up to in the last couple of decades, leading back to the thing we came here to talk about today. Um, you, the most people you've come in contact with in the film industry, the most celebrities, the most...
0: Shenanigans.
1: Oh, shenanigans. Oh. I like that. The most uh, Hollywood shenanigans that you've been dealing with center around a television show that aired between 1997 and the year 2000.
0: I was very, very young.
1: And, um. Practically a fetus. <laughs> and this television show was called The Hunger. Now, a good 20 years earlier ish, there was uh, a little bit less than 20 years earlier, there was a movie called The Hunger, which was directed by Tony Scott. It was, uh, I think it was his first film. It starred David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve and Susan Sarandon. And it's a weird, erotic vampire film. So skip forward to 1997, when Ridley and Tony Scott somehow wind up producing this television show, which the IMDb describes thusly. This is their little description. The Hunger. Erotic horror anthology series where the hosts, Terence Stamp in season one and David Bowie in season two, eccentrically introduce each of the steamy, erotic, and often supernatural tales of power, sex, lust, and driving urges. There were 44 episodes of this series. Uh, The first two episodes of the series were shot in London, while all the rest were shot in Montreal. Now, I know that you did not work on season one, so that means that you had a hand in uh, doing some assistant directing on a lot of episodes of season two, Indeed. And you came in contact with an awful lot of interesting, bizarre, famous people.
0: It was a weird one.
1: Okay, so for clarity, as an assistant director, what were your duties? What was expected of you on film sets or in the office?
0: Okay, so there's three, generally three assistant directors on a film set. The first assistant director kind of works with the director. Uh, Their responsibility is really to, like, operationalize what the director wants, So make sure the camera's there, make sure the actors are there, all that kind of stuff. Second assistant director is really in charge of the scheduling. They make the uh, call sheet for the next day. They're the ones who call the actors to make sure they're going to be available on set, make sure the locations are available, et cetera, et cetera. Third assistant director, which is, well, I was a trainee for most of it, but third assistant director is what, you know, you really end up doing as a trainee. Uh, Your job is really to go get the actors, go get the actors, you know, something to eat. Uh, wrangle the extras, go tell people stuff. Um, You you kind of end up doing a little bit of everything. I found that what my job really was, was just kind of being nice to people. Uh, I took it on myself to like, as as a third assistant director, you you kind of had the option to go to the craft truck mid-shoot and say like, hey, we need a grilled cheese sandwich or whatever. So occasionally you do that for one of the other crew members and then they would be eternally grateful so, being nice to people. Third assistant director. That was my job.
1: Okay, so you've been out of the film industry for so long that we're gonna get the hot goss, aren't we? <laughs> so
0: hot. The tea <laughs> is so hot. It's been microwaved a few times, but uh, yeah.
1: But at least you're not worried about working in the industry again. So anything that comes through will be about as honest as it gets. Which also means if you say something nice about somebody, it's earned.
0: True. It makes mental note to say nice something nice about someone. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, uh, we have a giant list of celebrities that you've dealt with and had experiences with, Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, why don't you jump in and tell me about anyone you like, and we'll see where it goes from there.
0: Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, um, I I guess the person sort of of the most note was working with Janina Faccio, uh, who, of course, is Ridley Scott's wife. And she was kind of exactly what you would expect. Um, She was very, very pretty, she was actually super nice. What she was not was super smart. Uh, the episode had something to do... Oh, I do don't—I barely remember it now, but it was something about some kind of thing that would disseminate seeds over a wide area for agriculture or something like that. And there was a line that was something along the lines of, like, disseminating a spore sample, and she just she couldn't say it. And at <laughs> one point she just went, I, I don't even know what this means. And, of course, wearing a lab coat and... Uh, four, five, six-inch plexiglass stilettos. Oh, wow. Like all scientists wear. (laughs) I can't tell you how many scientists in the hospital I see in their six-inch plexiglass slip-on high heels.
1: So Gina Facio uh, is in largely every Ridley Scott movie. She she gets a small part in every film he makes. I mean, I'm not looking right at her filmography at the moment, but I had a glance at it earlier, and it's the majority of his films. Uh, I just wanted to single one movie out that she happens to be in, because I think it's the most interesting Ridley Scott movie to ever mention. Now, this is Ridley Scott. He's made Blade Runner. He's made Thelma Louise. He's made Gladiator. He's made a lot of films people talk about all the time. Uh, And it tends to be that people don't talk about this movie, or when they do, it's rather negatively. Ridley Scott made a movie a few years ago called The Counselor, and she does have a role in that. The Counselor is a film that I just like to point out to people... It was written by Cormac McCarthy. It is a very dense movie. It's a little hard to understand in places, but it is by far my favorite film Ridley Scott ever worked on. It's really challenging, but it's also really rewarding. Why don't you tell us about somebody else that you spent a little time with, Malianne?
0: Let's see. Um, There was an episode where Eric Roberts was on. Um, The plot of that episode was... uh, he was like the guardian angel to a stripper or something along those lines, because you know that's super erotic right there. Um, but he was actually quite delightful. Um, a lot of people don't have nice things to say about Eric Roberts, but uh, he was quite professional. Showed up, did his thing, was pleasant. Uh, kind of rolled his eyes a little bit at the content, I believe. And uh, you know, it was he was a good it was a good week. He was easy to work with, possibly because his wife was there the whole time. I think. Uh, making sure he stayed in bounds but um yeah that no, was a good week
1: i do know that eric roberts at this point in his career and he is he is getting very close to having something like 500 film credits that's insanity and about half as many television credits Oof. and he just works non-stop he's been doing this for a very long time uh he does apparently at this point need his wife to act for him almost as a handler I've listened to a few interviews with him in the last 10 years. He's still with it, but the degree to which he is with it is debatable. Mm -hmm. He speaks well, but he is constantly asking questions about how things went in the past, where he doesn't really remember and he needs a little bit of reminding. And he's also never quite sure where he's off to next. So he's in an interesting place. The really interesting thing about uh, Roberts himself is that He has, again, like 500 movie credits. That's because he makes about 50 movies a year now. He'll do one-day walk-ons, he'll do two weeks on something. He's all over the place. The man works and works and works. But for the first 15 years of his career, he did about one or two movies a year. And there's some really high-quality stuff in there. I mean, most people know that Eric Roberts gave a pretty much Oscar-caliber performance in the Pope of Greenwich Village. But he's in two films I love mentioning, just to, as much as I can, you, you wouldn't believe it's the same guy who's in all of these lifetime My Doctor Betrayed Me movies. But, um, <laughs> but back in the 1980s, uh, Eric Roberts was in two films I really loved. He was in this movie called By the Sword, which is a piece between him and F. Mary Abraham about a fencing school. It's really delightful drama that nobody ever talks about, but it's a great movie. That's called By the Sword. And the other one... It's called Best of the Best, which is a karate team movie. Now, it's not a karate movie. You're you're not going to watch a revenge story. Actually, that's uh, sort of true, sort of not true. It's about the team that's trying to make it to the Olympics. And in this day and age, one of the most popular things out there is Cobra Kai, the TV show that's looking back on the Karate Kid series in uh, an interesting way. The movie Best of the Best is actually quite close to what they're doing on the Cobra Kai show now. It's showing a bunch of people training on a team to try to make the Olympics. But with 80s haircuts. Oh boy, the 80s haircuts. Mm-hmm. The crazy thing is Best of the Best is it's in my top 50 films of all time. Even though it's a little silly, a little goofy in places, it has a character arc for one character that carries through the whole movie. And, and for a movie that has a lot of action bits in it, it's, um, it's pretty compassionate. And I love movies that end in a way that surprises me. So I, I always like to say to people, you should see Best of the Best. It, it isn't what you think it is.
0: Well, I would say Eric Roberts was shorter than I thought he would be and very handsome. So there you go.
1: I mean, he, he does have that family lineage of he does. everybody's a movie star. Yes. His sister, his daughter, they're all, uh, they're all in the club at this point.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All right, well, let's, uh, let's talk about some more people you've, you've, you've rubbed elbows with.
0: I don't remember actually rubbing elbows, per se. <laughs> it might have been a union violation. I'm not sure. Uh, so I did work with Anthony Michael Hall one week. Uh, he plays uh, another... He plays an avenging angel, if I remember correctly. That's I see. believe there were giant wings involved at one point.
1: I feel um, like that's also what Eric Roberts was doing. Is it just like a series uh, no, of... No, he was a guardian angel. Guardian angel, avenging different. angel. The, the
0: um, Anthony Michael Hall episode, I believe, was directed by Russell Mulcahy of... Uh, Highlander fame.
1: And Duran Duran video fame.
0: I mean, does it get better than that?
1: Yeah, he directed Girls on Film. Oh, wow. Which is the, if you've ever oh, seen I'd the uncensored well. version, is a... Has It's, it's it. softcore porn. Yeah. It's softcore porn. But yes, he did, he did soft, the original Highlander, yeah. which everyone thinks he did a great job on. And yet somehow he directed Highlander too,
0: Which is, I paid to see in the movie theater, and I... Would like to have whatever that costs, $7.50 or whatever, back,
1: please. I feel like there's... Everyone who ever sat through that movie is owed... Uh, there, there should be a class-action lawsuit where we all divide up a rather large sum of money.
0: Seriously. I, like, I was kind of almost maybe there until the they, like was a scene cut, and there's the subtitle, The Planet Zeist. And I was like, what? I would have flipped a table had there been a table in the movie theater. <laughs> Honestly.
1: Yeah, Honestly they... There was a very, very strange shift in the decision for what Highlander 2 would be about that felt like it was written by people who hadn't seen Highlander. Indeed. Which is a rare case in movies of a sequel going, not just somewhere else, somewhere having nothing to do with the original. Oh yeah, it jumped jumped
0: to light speed and Mm -hmm. fell through a wormhole and ended up somewhere else. Um, But anyway... Uh, Russell Mulcahy was actually pretty interesting to work with because he'd get all up in his head and then he'd like wander off into the studio and someone would have to go find him eventually. <laughs> it's like, oh, we've we've lost the director again. Uh, but he, some, I mean, it was a real, every episode was a different director and some of them were just like local guys who hadn't really directed much before. And he was the one director who really had a very strong visual idea of what he wanted to shoot and then made it happen. So he was really, he was interesting to watch that way. Um, Anthony Michael Hall, who I grew up watching in movies like, you know, The Breakfast Club, et cetera, et cetera, um, was great. He was super professional and really nice. And, uh, I remember him making some comment about how, yeah, but my, my mother would never have put up with me being a jerk on sets. So I feel like he actually had some quality stage parenting. Um, see, see if I brought that back around? Nice callback. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, he was a, a genuinely nice guy.
1: Ah, yeah. that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, I'll just quickly mention that we all know his name from The Breakfast Club and a few other Sixteen Candles, yep. Edward Scissorhands. The man has a, had a really weird career in that he was super famous for a brief period of time in the 80s. Then he couldn't get arrested for about 15 years. Yeah,
0: after Saturday Night Live.
1: Uh, right. That's true, the Saturday Night yep. Live debacle, where he and Robert Downey Jr. became cast members on Saturday Night Live for one season, and it just didn't work. And... um he tried to make it as an action star in a movie called Out of Bounds, a few other things, and he had a lot of they they gave him a lot of leeway after The Breakfast Club and it didn't quite work out. So he has a quiet period. Then he sort of has a big comeback when he was on The Dead Zone television show for a little while. People started to recognize him again.
0: Yeah, he had that awkward thing where he went from playing like nerdy preteen teen roles to being like a football player yeah. sized guy. So I think that was an awkward transition.
1: He went so far from playing a nerd to a jock Mm -hmm. that he played a bully on the TV show Community, which is just lampooning the fact that he used to be the guy getting bullied and everything.
0: Well, Edward Scissorhands was the first one where it was like, that's Anthony Michael Hall? Oh my god, what happened?
1: All right. Well, tell us about uh, some more of these crazy famous people <laughs> that you have had fun uh, dealing with over the years.
0: Uh, Kathy Moriarty was on an episode of The Hunger, and what was just great about her is that what you see on screen is what you get. Like, that's just her. She has that voice. She has that voice. Um, and, you know, you listen to her on the phone with her family, and that's that's what she was like. Um don't remember that episode being particularly exciting to film, um, but it was just cool to have somebody that famous and that unique as a person on set.
1: Oh yeah, she is, um, I mean, she's super famous, of course, for starting out in Raging Bull, mm-hmm. where she played De Niro's wife. I mean, it's, she's pretty unforgettable in that, and yes, her voice is so signature. Oh yeah,
0: and that's just it. It is what it is.
1: Her last big thing that she did is essentially a starring role is she played Andrew Dice Clay's wife on a sitcom. I actually didn't uh, remember, I don't remember the name of that show, but it was essentially a version of The Honeymooners where they were kind of a grumpy old couple together. And that is the strangest place to wind up. It was post Andrew Dice Clay being famous, it was his slide downwards from superstardom that he had very briefly, uh, the show only lasted about half a season, but it's just, it's just a very interesting place for the two of them to have ended up together. I also think they're a very odd couple. So, why don't you mention uh, another person who uh, might have a connection to the same thing I was just talking about.
0: No, he didn't work on The Hunger. I met him. Oh, that's okay.
1: Yeah, We're just talking about celebrities in okay. general.
0: Okay. Uh, so, back when I was working with the improv troupe, just for laughs festivals in montreal every year and all the all the famous people used to hang out at the delta hotel so i was at the delta hotel hanging out with the improv peoples and um actually the woman that i started working at the talent agency for with whatever uh we were just walking down a hallway and gilbert gottfried was just sitting having a drink at the bar by himself and she stopped and said to him like oh i've always wanted to meet you and uh he said like oh that's very nice and then he looked at me and said have you always wanted to meet me too and I had no idea who he was (laughs) so I said sure (laughs) and that's my Gilbert Gottfried story that
1: that may be the best Gilbert Gottfried story possible I love what he said to you it's so pushy and weird and also kind of funny yeah and your reaction is sure that's a great that's a great response uh, Godfrey, of course, has a crazy long list of credits, including playing the parrot in Aladdin, mm-hmm. which most people know him from, yeah. and being a loudmouth, annoying person in a million sitcom episodes. He
0: also did a delightful reading from Fifty Shades of Grey.
1: That is very true. Mm-hmm. He, he's a special guy, or he was a special guy. He's since passed. Uh, I just, to single him out, his small connection to Kathy Moriarty is that Gilbert Godfrey had a pretty big part. In, a, in the Andrew Dice Clay movie, which is The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, in which Gilbert Gottfried played a character who was a DJ named Johnny Crunch.
0: That is my next cat name.
1: Johnny Crunch. It's mm-hmm. pretty great. Uh, his role in the movie is just basically him being super awful and annoying, and then being brutally murdered. And it's one of the many characters that Ford Fairlane must avenge. I, I'm a huge fan of the movie Ford Fairlane. But I will be pretty much the first person to say, it's a terrible movie. <laughs> Even the writer of the film, uh, Dan Waters. Daniel Waters is among my favorite writers. He has a hundred stories about working on that film and how ridiculous it was. And the good time he had anyway. But that everyone knew the, the, the writing was on the wall. It was an Andrew Dice Clay rock and roll detective movie. It, it was only so far they could go with it. And uh, the level and that
0: place was the Hard Rock Cafe. Yeah,
1: more or less. Yeah.
0: Uh, so okay, so another another famous person that I I hesitate to say worked with uh, was David Warner, who was kind of a venerable uh, a venerable gentleman at that point in time, um, and that episode was about a vampirist who was played by if you're from Quebec, you might recognize the name Marina Orsini uh, who was une grande vedette in her time and uh, she played this vampire and he was her manservant but he was aging out and needed to find her a new manservant. That was the entire plot.
1: You know that's the exact plot, if they were children, of Let the Right One In.
0: Eh, I mean... It's real close. How, how many new storylines are there for vampires, really?
1: Well, apparently not as many as I thought, because when that movie came out, it seemed quite revolutionary. Mm-hmm. And Now I know they were just ripping off That's a right. David Warner episode of The Hunger. The
0: Hunger did it first, man. The OG uh, vampire... Rep- anyway, uh, so he was a very quiet guy, David Warner, um, which was interesting. He, what he really wanted to do was go watch... Was it football?
1: You mean you mean football football British Probably, football?
0: Probably yeah. I, I don't even remember now, but that's kind of what he wanted to do was like go to a bar and watch that. That was it. Eh, doesn't surprise me. That did his thing. We filmed a scene outside the Mount Stevens Club. Well, it was the Mount Stevens Club at that point. Uh, now it's Bar George. Oh. A Very fancy restaurant where you can go and have a piece of French toast on a plate for brunch.
1: Well, most people remember David Warner as uh, two two particular roles. He was the character, I think his name is literally Evil, in Time Bandits, the delightful Terry Gilliam film. He's, of course, in the original The Omen. Uh, some people might remember him for his wonderful turn in a movie called Time After Time, where he played Jack the Ripper, who time travels to modern-day 1979, where he does battle with Malcolm McDowell's H.G. Wells. That sounds like a crazy movie, but it is kind of great. Uh, Mary Steenburgen is in that, too. Malcolm McDowell met her on that film, and they, married, they got married after that.
0: So I guess next up on the list, although I, I remember very little about this particular episode, was A. Martinez, who I really remember most for the fact that his first name is A. Uh, and that's how he introduced himself. Hi, I'm A. There you go. Uh, the, un- the only other noticeable thing about that episode was that the... The Naked Lady lead on that episode was uh, Maria Bertrand, who I don't think she's done much else. But uh, she ended up dating George Clooney when he was in Montreal uh, shooting, well, directing uh, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. So there you go. There you go. A little bit of connection there. And I remember being on set going like, okay, nude scene, everybody, please leave the set. (laughs) And uh, all the electricians and stuff going, well, I can just watch it when it's on TV. Like, yeah, but she won't be in your house when you're watching it on TV, so please leave the lady some privacy. Anyway.
1: That's a good anecdote, Ugh. actually. That's a really good depiction of what it must have been like to literally be on a set trying to explain to somebody, this is why it's a closed set.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and like, nobody took me seriously, and, oh, yeah. I mean, I would like to say it's different times, but it was pre-Me Too. There. They're so all... There. There is that.
1: There are a lot of stories running around these days about how well and not well it's currently going. Well, seriously. And this is why we needed a nudity survival guide. Yeah, which apparently has evolved into that intimacy a, a coordinator type. Ugh.
0: Yeah. It's like, a, it's like a sex scene doula. <laughs> yeah. There you go. There you go. Uh,
1: a. Martinez. Now, I, I didn't realize I'm actually quite familiar with this gentleman named A. In 1972, he's one of the young kids in the movie The Cowboys, which is one of the best John Wayne movies, where John Wayne needs to get uh, his herd of cattle across country, and he can't get any adult ranch hands to work with him because I think they're out of money. And then no one will work, essentially, on spec of when we get there, everyone gets paid. So, so
0: we'll exploit some child labor?
1: So he is convinced by a gang of... They're not even adults. they're They're, they're teenagers that they have enough chops to help him get this hurt across. And that is the whole movie. Uh, and I believe one of the Carradines is one of the leads, and uh, a whole bunch of people who became later known as much older actors. But uh, at the time, they were teenagers, and A. Martinez is just one of those guys, and they, they have a lot of great chemistry with John Wayne in the film. Uh, I think, is Bruce Dern the villain in that one? Anyway, there's a lot of really good character actors in that film.
0: Okay, so next up on my hit list, list, whatever, it's a list, uh, was William McNamara, who I barely remember except for a vague, like, sunglass-wearing, protein bar-eating, bro-ish kind of energy, and the moment on that that I'll always remember was, uh, there's a scene where he's supposed to pick up the leading lady who was a Canadian actress named April Talad. Um and William McNamara's not a huge guy and april was quite tall and like a a more robust person just not like a little shrinking violet so he picks her up and like staggered backwards and went through one of the set walls (laughs) no one was hurt no one was hurt but uh yeah that was pretty entertaining
1: i um i'm familiar with william mcnamara from a couple of 80s movies I uh, yeah I didn't have an opinion of him as a person cuz he's really just a like a character actor and all of these things. Mm-hmm. He he's actually his very first credit is a Dario Argento film called Opera which came out in 87 and I saw it after having seen him in a couple of movies where he was the uh, one, of, one of the teenage protagonists in a few films. And when I saw uh, Opera he's he's fully dubbed in that. So his performance is non-existent. Oh, it's wow. just his face and some other English-speaking actor talking over him. Because, of course, the movies, the Argento's films in that era were either filmed without sound, or they were shot mostly in Italian and then dubbed into various languages. And so, um, that that one's not much. I, I just love mentioning the Argento connection. But I do remember he's in Dream a Little Dream, which is the two Corys movie with Jason Robards, which is a shockingly good film, considering how many things in that movie don't work and shouldn't work, but Jason Robards is pretty classy. It makes the movie work he, a lot better. He elevates it. Oh, unbelievably. Uh, it, it, it's a super weird film, though. Like I, I recommend everybody see Dream a Little Dream just to see what it was they were trying to get away with in that movie. It's esoteric while being a teen sex comedy and features lots of very strange ideas. Why don't you tell us about somebody else that you spent a little time with, Molly
0: but my first week on set, the special guest for that episode was Laurie Petty, uh, who you may know from such illustrious movies as Tank Girl, uh, and of course, A League of Their Own. And uh, she kept mentioning A League of Their Own all week.
1: Oh, wow. All
0: week. You well, know, when we were League on Our Own, blah, 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 when we were on the League of Our Own, this and a, this it and was that. It was a
1: big It deal. was huge. It was a huge movie. There's no the crying time. in baseball.
0: There was no crying in baseball. Or so I hear. Mm-hmm. Well, Tom Hanks said that, I believe, so you better listen. Uh, also, Madonna and Rosie O'Donnell, like, come on now. Um, yeah, she was a strange little person. I don't remember that episode being very successful. You know, when you're shooting something and you just get the idea that nobody's nobody's really happy with how it's turning out. Uh, I don't suspect that was her fault. Anyone's fault? I don't know. Uh, she spent a lot of time in her trailer burning incense. I don't know what that means particularly but uh there was a trailer there was incense that's
1: great yeah. um i i i remember her in tank girl the interesting thing about her in tank girl was she replaced a pretty famous or at least up-and-coming british actress named emily lloyd and she balked when they told her she would have to shave or partially shave her head for the role of tank girl and then they went looking and found Lori Petty, and apparently, the director said, Lori Petty was a dream to work with. Mm-hmm. She was fully on board, going completely punk for the film, so she, she got a lot of kudos for her work in that. Meanwhile, I think that movie is atrocious. <laughs> it's got a lot of heart, it's really trying, but I, I hated sitting through it. It's one of those films. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't fault her. She's got a lot of energy in that movie, but it's, it's a rough one for me. Uh, where where I liked Laurie Petty, and it's strange to say I liked her in this when I first really discovered her, was in, I, I'm imagining it's her breakout role, which is Point Break. She plays the woman that Keanu Reeves is, I'd say, interested in, but he's really using her to try to get in with Patrick Swayze's gang in that movie. And the interesting thing about that movie is I love the movie Point Break. It works on a number of levels it has no right working on, but the funniest thing is, there are things in movies that you believe and things that you do not believe. You watch a film and you say, wow, that was completely, re- they made it real. Or they failed to make it real. So Point Break has both of those. There is, there were two romances in that film. There is a romance between Laurie Petty and Keanu Reeves. And there was a romance between Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze. The romance between Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze is 100% honest. You believe it. It completely... They sell it in a way that you have no doubt these men love each other.
0: Undoubtedly also fueling many slash fiction stories on the internet.
1: Exactly. Meanwhile, the upfront romance in the film that they they front-load is the Keanu Reeves-Laurie Petty romance, which doesn't work at all. They have no chemistry. There are two scenes in the film where they almost say I love you to each other, and they're completely phony, terrible Hollywood sequences. And both of those are in the same film. This, These two relationships, one which works so well, one that is almost so entirely made of cardboard. Kind of a, a movie.
0: point breakback
1: mountain. There, you, there go. you go. Well done. Thank you.
0: So when I was at Actra one day, uh, Michael Ironside came walking in because I believe he was considering moving back to Montreal to raise his kids or something like that. So he was just hanging out around the office for a little bit, and uh, that guy looks way nicer in person. Like, film brings out the evil eyebrow thing, but in person, he was just, like,
1: a regular nice-looking guy. Well, he is the supervillain in, like, 25 big movies, including Scanners. That's the big one. Is He's making people's heads explode by staring at them in that one.
0: I mean, that famous moment of Louis Delgron's head exploding, I mean, that, that just lives on in meme form. For eternity
1: uh, And it should It's It's wonderful It it is, exactly It is quite wonderful Mm -hmm. to see Michael Ironside Willing someone's head to pop Uh, But he's He's literally been Dozens and dozens of things Where he plays this Creepy villain I actually met him once Um, I was managing a video store Back in the 90s And Michael Ironside Apparently was sitting At the cafe downstairs Someone ran in to tell me During my shift There's a super famous actor outside And then they couldn't Figure out his name (laughs) He's like jack nicholson but not quite like jack nicholson a little bit more canadian
0: yeah
1: i did not race jack nicholson yeah yeah I, I did not race outside to meet him in the moment but waited for my shift end he was still there it turns out he was having a drink with his daughter mm. and i knew i was stepping over a line even approaching him i was very careful about it i asked him if it was okay to say hello and i would have happily walked away had he said no or said anything Um, and I, I like to do this if I ever meet a celebrity. I like to bring up a project that I think is more personal to them than the biggest thing they were ever in, which is the only thing most people know them from. I knew that Michael Ironside had written a movie that I quite enjoyed in 1991 that was called Chain Dance. And it's like a two, it's a two-hander between him and Brad Dourif. It's a great film. Mm. And I was so happy to talk to him about it. And the one anecdote I remember him mentioning to me was he said, you know, that was a little bit based on a true story. And it was about a guy in prison and somebody that he met in prison and the relationship that they had for various reasons. And he said, if we made a movie out of what really happened, no one would believe it. I think it was because there had just been too many ridiculous crime story type cliches in this guy's life. So they had to calm all that down and make it a bit more of a, a, friendship, rom- a friendship drama, I guess you'd say. Something along those lines. So I mentioned that to him, and at that, uh, and we had a nice little chat about it. And then he mentioned to me that he had just finished directing a movie starring Laurie Petty. And mm. uh, this was uh, circa 1999, 98, 99. You, you didn't know to ask her about the incense at that point, though. I did not. Mm-hmm. Uh, he probably didn't either. <laughs> uh, so he mentioned he had just made this movie, and in the moment sitting there, he told me he was really happy with it, and it was called Trollop, which... As a derogatory term, I guess, for a sex worker or a fallen woman, that kind of title. Yeah. So I I took that with me. I remembered the title. I tried to figure out when, I, when and where that might appear. And a couple of years later, I stumbled onto a movie directed by Michael Ironside. But it wasn't called Trollope anymore. It was called Deadly Arrangement. And of course, with a womp womp. title like that, no one was ever going to find this movie.
0: Um, I think most of the other people on that list are people that I sort of met through Just for Laughs, well, met, you know, saw through Just for Laughs, um, uh, in people who checked me out at Just for Laughs, uh, back when I was younger and cuter, (laughs) right, uh, was Adam Beach, like, that guy was hot, there was some mutual checking out that, uh, didn't go anywhere, just like, you know, disclaimer there. Uh, he's a good looking man, Adam Beach.
1: Any more notable brushes with fame or celebrities who showed you a little interest?
0: The other n- notable person who checked me out at Just for Laughs, uh, would have been Bruce McCullough, uh, from Kids in the Hall. Yeah, I've met, I've actually met a few kids in the hall very, uh, you know, not, not, we, we were never deep friends, <laughs> uh, but I did exchange a few words with Scott Thompson at one point, uh, he seemed like a reasonably nice guy, and uh, Kevin McDonald, I believe, is like a cousin of one of the guys who was in the improv troupe that I worked with, uh, noted Canadian comic Scott Falconbridge. And uh, so he and his wife, girlfriend, wife uh, sat with us at one point during some show, which was for laughs, I think. He was just like a nice, normal guy, which is what I like to believe that all the kids in the hall are. But I am probably wrong because men never fail to disappoint me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, well, I'm I'm a fellow Canadian, and I've had my run-ins with a couple of kids in the hall myself.
0: Did they check you out?
1: Uh, I'm not, to my knowledge, mm-hmm. but you never know. I, I guess most notably, I've I've run into Kevin McDonald more than once. I saw him do some karaoke at a comedy club once, not not during the comedy club's operating hours, just in the bar having some fun with some friends. He got up on stage and sang Monster Mash.
0: Of course, he did. That's perfect.
1: Uh, so, yeah, I saw Kevin McDonald there. He, he gave us a pretty good performance uh, doing it full in full Kevin McDonald glory of Wonderful. the way he uses yeah. his squeaky voice. So he sang Monster Mash. And a couple of years later, I actually saw him uh, do a small one-man... Well, it's kind of a one-man show. He did have an accompanying musician. He, uh, he had a one-man show called Hammy and the Kids, which is about his relationship with his drunk dad. And it's hmm. really rough. And it's all funny, all rough, and especially strange because it was a musical. And when Kevin McDonald introduced the show, he said, So I'm about to uh, perform a musical for you, and heads up, I can't sing. And then he sang for probably about 90 minutes of squeaky, off key, very wow. entertaining singing, though. It was a great time. But it was probably worth mentioning. <laughs> it was gonna be bad. Hammy and the kids before we got into it.
0: That makes me think of uh, notable children's show uh, Hammy the Hamster. Mm-hmm. Did you ever see Hammy the Hamster? I have. Yep. It's nothing like a live action hamster to uh, really make you question while you're watching television. Anyway.
1: Uh, on the Kids in the Hall front, I always love to mention it Scott Thompson mostly comedy but he has a weird, wonderful, dramatic turn on the TV show Hannibal, which I think was all shot in Toronto, so always fun to watch. Uh, It's good to see him stretch a little, at least. Mm. And uh, Bruce McCullough had a one-man show, uh, which I've never seen the one-man show. It's called Young Drunk Punk, but I just found out a couple of months ago that they turned Young Drunk Punk into a TV show for 12 episodes or something. And uh, he wrote, I think, every episode, might have directed them all. And he stars on it as the dad, and it's really an autobiographical piece on what a piece of garbage Bruce McCullough was when he was a teenager, and that's actually kind of fun. So, yeah, there's a there's a project probably nobody's heard of. He's also directed a couple of weird movies, I think. he's one of them called Dog Park, I think, oh, with Luke yeah, Wilson. Oh, yeah, 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 I remember
0: that.
1: I'd actually love to see Bruce McCullough just keep directing strange indie comedies.
0: So uh, back to the Delta Hotel in the uh, Just for Laughs days of my youth. Uh, Other comedians that I saw there or, uh, you know, had any kind of interaction with. um, Dave Chappelle totally hit on one of my friends. Like, totally hit on
1: her. Whatever happened to that guy? It's like we never hear about him anymore.
0: Yeah, it's true. It's a shame. He's he's
1: really crazy famous. He's really crazy famous.
0: Um, I believe... I believe at that juncture, uh, Sinbad was also circulating, but I could be wrong about that because, uh, you know, Sinbad tends to appear in movies that don't exist and such like. <laughs> so he may have appeared in a memory that didn't actually exist. Uh, but I do know at that same particular afternoon at the Delta that I gave Caroline Ray a band aid.
1: I mean, so there you go. If anyone needed one, it must have been Caroline Ray. Absolutely, she's she's kind of sweet.
0: She seemed fine. She cut her finger. I had a band aid.
1: I'm not that familiar with her overall career, yeah. but isn't she on all of the original uh, Sabrina the Teenage Witch show? Yep. She plays she, yep. one of the one aunts of, one of or the aunts. something? Yep. Yeah.
0: That's it. And uh, foreshadowing of my career in nursing, right there.
1: I mean, I like, you know? I like talking about your nursing career because you literally started off working in a nursing uniform store in high school. Then did a hundred jobs before deciding.
0: I was, I was waiting for the nursing uniforms to get less terrible. So I was I was very successful in that. They're they're quite nice now, even though I don't have to wear one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and yeah, you went back to school, got all the big degrees, I sure and did. finally you've uh, found your field.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so back to the Delta Hotel. Um, those were some good times. Uh, we oh here's one that I, I'd forgotten about. We met uh, what's his name British comic. Has been dressing in women's clothes for forever. Eddie. Eddie Izzard. We met Eddie Izzard way back in the day, uh, and he was just a totally normal guy who was wearing. I mean, this was the '90s. Uh, just regular guy who happened to be wearing nail polish and eye makeup, and like you know, pants and a jacket, and uh, just seemed like a like a cool dude.
1: I've listened to dozens of interviews with him. He's super charming.
0: Yep, yeah, he was. He was that guy.
1: He's also ridiculously educated. Yeah. When he when he starts talking about a subject, he just goes off on tangents. What's quite amazing is if you've ever watched one of his comedy specials, they're very in depth. There's a lot of history in them, a lot of humor, and he essentially adlibs them every night. He has a structure that he kind of follows, but That's anytime impressive. anytime you see him, it's essentially off the cuff. And uh, I don't have that power. I I've got my anecdotes ready, but they're they're not <laughs> as they're not as concise as his considering. I've seen variations in what he'll talk about, and you realize you you have no script. You're just chatting away.
0: And that's why they pay him the big bucks. Yeah.
1: Oh, he's also learned four or five more languages in Jeez. the last 25 years that he can now perform his entire show in. I believe Whoa. he now does his whole show in French, in German, possibly Italian, and there's more. He's, he's worth looking up. Wow. Oh, and crazily, of course, he had a whole thing for a few years there where he ran marathons, And I believe he at one point ran 30 marathons in a month. Oh, okay. My knees hurt just thinking about that. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, he's currently making a bid to go into politics. Oh. This guy has a really weird career arc.
0: Hey, man. I can't say anything. (laughs) (laughs) I've also had a very weird but um, much less successful career arc, I would say. They don't pay me the big bucks.
1: Is really what I'm trying to say. Well, not the Eddie, Eddie Izzard bucks. Not the Eddie Izzard bucks.
0: I do wear eye makeup, though, from time to time. Um, so another one of my friends back back in the day uh, had a huge crush on this guy. that she, she We met at Just for Laughs, so she tried to hang out with a lot. He was named Blaine Kapatch. Uh, I don't think he's really gone on to do much of much. Um, but his friend who he was hanging out with at the time, uh, so we hung out with a little bit, was a guy you may have heard of named Patton Oswalt.
1: Who was not famous back he was then. was not but famous is... back then one of the most famous guys now yep yeah I'm a fa- I'm a huge fan of yep. Pat Oswalt.
0: and the best part is none of these people would remember me I'm sure
1: We're well, the Zelig I guess of this story
0: <laughs> Sure I mean I'm Jewish so <laughs> I have that going for me. <laughs>
1: All right. I believe you you peripherally worked on a whole bunch of Montreal productions of films as well, or were around while they were being shot.
0: Yeah. So uh, particularly in the year before, and then the year, the few years I worked at after, there was a lot of American production being shot in Montreal, uh, largely, I believe, to save costs. Um, so one of my coworkers came up with the theory that if there was a A film that had some people behind it and kind of had to get made for, you know, whatever political reasons, Um, but the studio heads wanted to save as much money as possible to keep the costs of the disaster down. They would send it to Montreal, uh, where you could hire a crew for not super much money. And uh, two of the films that they shot while I was working at ACTRA that helped prove this theory were uh, Battlefield Earth, the much maligned Scientology movie made by and starring John Travolta. Uh, And also Pluto Nash.
1: There are so many stories about those movies that circulated locally. Yeah. Uh, Pluto Nash, notoriously, was the movie in which Eddie Murphy was the craziest he's ever been on a Mm -hmm. movie. And to say, I don't mean erratic behavior, but more just selfish. Uh, When you hear the jokes about how celebrities have a clause in their contract that no one is allowed to make eye contact with them. That's him. They're usually referring to Pluto Nash and Eddie Murphy, Mm -hmm. which apparently he did. He also had a, um, a clause in his contract that stated he would never have to walk more than X number of feet ever to get to the set, and this necessitated golf carts driving him around, including, I, I've heard this many times, they needed to get him across a building into the set using the golf cart, and the set was built in a way that they couldn't, and he wouldn't bend, they had to disassemble the set in order to let the golf cart drive through, rather than him walk around the building. And that really happened, apparently.
0: The irony is he probably brought his personal trainer with him.
1: All very likely. He had a giant entourage. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, the great thing is, at least Pluto Nash turned out to be the best film he ever worked on.
0: Oh, snap. (sighs) Oh, that got real.
1: (laughs) Well, Pluto Nash is a very, very bad movie. I did not see it. It's a pretty bad movie. And
0: I'm okay with that. Uh, the one that I worked on, which is wildly widely considered to be a terrible movie, uh, was called Rollerball. And uh, when, when that one came up, I put up my hand and said, Oh, let me take that one. I would love a good 70s remake. Yeah, I, I regret that to this day. That movie was a nightmare to try and steward. Let's just say that's the movie where uh, somebody called me crying, saying they just had her do a scene in a locker room where she had to take her shirt off. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Oh, and that girl was hired as an extra. I got her a lot of money on that one. I'm glad that has at least kind of a happy ending. Oh, yeah. I, who was it? It was MGM, I think, who was the producer of that movie. And at the beginning, one, beginning went on about how, like, oh, you know, this is the, the movie studio that made Judy Garland a star and blah, blah, blah. And then uh, I actually called that guy. He was, like, the head of the legal department, I think. I did not get paid enough to do the stuff I did when I was at ACTRA. Um, So yeah, I I got him on the phone. I was like, do you realize that this thing just happened where uh, an extra who you hired to be on roller skates uh, has now been naked in the film. And uh, I remember him saying like, oh, MGM wouldn't have treated Judy Garland that way. The irony, of course, being that MGM didn't make her take her shirt off, but boy, did they pour a lot of drugs down her throat to keep her in line. Anyway, the happy ending to that is we got her a fair chunk of change. Uh, And it At one point, I got a phone call from a, I believe it was an accountant she'd hired to try and invest the stuff wisely. So I was like, good, good on you. So I hope she's out there. I don't even remember her name off the top of my head. I hope she's out there thriving right now. Going to town on that money from that film.
1: Is there anything else you'd like to add about your rollerball experience?
0: The whole thing was a bit shady at that moment in time. John McTiernan was busy having a baby with his son's ex-girlfriend. Yeah, which just is, like, super cringy and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and uh, I don't remember the what the atmosphere on set was actually like, but I do know for a fact that one of the assistant directors spat in John McTiernan's coffee.
1: And that wasn't you?
0: That was not me. Oh, no, no, no. I was uh, I was not actually working film crew on that set. It was definitely not me. I don't believe I ever drank coffee on that film set.
1: Anything else in your uh, film experience that you have uh, any memories of? Um, any of those productions?
0: I do remember them filming Confessions of a Dangerous Mind here. Uh, people really only had good things to say about George Clooney. Uh, apparently he was just right gentlemanly.
1: It's nice uh, to know that that's a consistent comment about him. Right? It's somebody. Yeah. Somebody's got to be okay in Hollywood. There's got to be one.
0: <laughs> and that's why he lives in Italy. Um, I remember them filming the whole nine yards here with, uh, of course, Bruce Willis and I believe Rosanna Arquette, who they hired to play a French-Canadian.
1: One As- of the rare movies shot in Quebec or Montreal that actually takes place here. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I think it was a last minute change of venue. I think they were originally going to shoot it somewhere else. Then when they moved it to Montreal, the movie, the script reflects the fact that it's Montreal. They don't try to hide any of the landmarks. But then there's some very odd things in a film that do not make sense here. Like they go out to a restaurant, and Bruce Willis turns to Matthew Perry and he says, I love this place, but they put mayonnaise on everything. To which I'm sitting in Montreal watching this in a movie theater thinking, they do? And they bring out, Bruce Willis, a hamburger after he says, Do not put mayonnaise on this hamburger. And they bring him out a hamburger with mayonnaise on it. And all I could think was, who researched this? I mean, they do put mayonnaise on the french fries here. One thing. <laughs> I put mayonnaise on one thing. Fair.
0: Fair. They they
1: were basically saying it was put on all food. It was a very strange addition to that comedy sequence.
0: I mean, mayonnaise is never not funny.
1: I think that was the point at the time. <laughs> mayonnaise, it's never not funny. We can just make stuff up about it.
0: That's their new slogan. Mayonnaise, <laughs> it's never not funny. Um, The Score. That was a movie I... I mean, they barely hired anybody locally to work on it, but uh, I believe that was the one that Marlon Brando essentially directed from a uh, from
1: his trailer. Oh, I think you mean Frank Oz. Martin no, Brando's no, I in meant Marlon... Dire-
0: no, I know, but uh, Frank Oz was the director, but Marlon Brando, of course, would not work with anybody and sat in his trailer and issued rewrites and various things. It was one of those ones where... Uh, we always had the joke around the office that one of my coworkers was going to write a TV series called Goldenrod, uh, that was about the you know the inner workings of the film industry because when they released script changes or back in the day, uh, every time they released a new version of the script, the pages that were changed would be on a different color of paper. So you knew you were in trouble when they started circling back around, uh, and you knew you were in trouble when they got to Goldenrod because that was always like the last. Color on the color wheel that you would get to. So triple goldenrod, I believe, is where they got to on that film. Wow. Yeah, many, many script changes. Like
1: so many movies that Edward Norton worked on, because he's the he's not the protagonist. He's the secondary protagonist. It's a it's a Robert De Niro movie who he partners with uh, Edward Norton. Like so many of the Norton movies, it's kind of amazing. He goes to work on a project. Everyone has the best of intentions, and by the time that movie comes out, it's all compromises. There've been. Don't get me wrong, Norton's worked on a a lot of films that work very well. But if you know the production history of American History X, or his Hulk film, or The Score, any number of things he worked on, it's just bedlam. And I don't blame him, but it's just, it's amazing how many of those projects have a very bizarre past.
0: It's because he kept uh, bringing Marlon Brando with him. (laughs) I'm sure that's it.
1: Oh, I love Marlon Brando and the Hulk. Could have doubled for he him is in those the Hulk. scenes. <laughs> you could have doubled for him in those scenes. That would have been a great idea. Uh,
0: other other delightful moments from working in comedy and such. Uh, well, I guess really the only one would be uh, Yakov Smirnoff uh, showing up randomly to do a set at the Comedy Works one night. It was just like apparently Yakov Smirnov's coming to do a set here, and then Yakov Smirnov literally showed up. I think he had a big like private show, and he just wanted to like you know warm up the day before. But he was already... I mean, this would have been the early 90s, probably. So he was already a comedian whose prime had passed. Oh, okay. Oh, Yeah, so this was like uh, an oddity. But there he was, doing his thing.
1: Uh, In the the same era, I have one experience. If we're Mm going to swap uh, Montreal Comedy Club stories. During (laughs) Just for Laughs, which is the big festival held here most summers, Mm -hmm. when there's no lockdown, (laughs) (laughs) is during Just for Laughs... Apparently, it is very common at our local comedy clubs, and we used to have a half dozen of them. I think we're down to one now, maybe two. And um, it was very common, if you went out to see a show at a comedy club during Just for Laughs, that after the show was, after the headliners were done, everyone in town, especially the super famous people, would show up just for fun and do a set. And so the show could go from being a 90-minute show to a four-hour show. Mm -hmm. And it was well worth buying tickets, just in case. Well, someone came to Montreal who had never even- I don't think he'd even been to Canada before. It was a writer and performer named Ben Elton. And Ben Elton- Oh,
0: wow, I love Ben Elton. Is a
1: real personality, for one thing. Uh, and I knew him because he was the, the screenwriter, you might say, of the television show Blackadder. Mm-hmm. I'd been a huge fan of that, and I was very curious to see what kind of a guy he was. So I went out and saw his one-man show, he was really intense, really intelligent. Uh, a, a wonderful couple of hours of listening to him tell stories. And when he was done, they began bringing people on stage, one after another, who were just shown up from Just For Laughs. Now I'm pretty sure I must have seen at least six pretty famous comedians that night. But the one I remember best was somebody I had never heard of before. And that was a gentleman by the name of Adam Sandler.
0: This <laughs> was around
1: 1990. Mm. And Adam Sandler went up on stage and proceeded to, I would really like to say, completely ad-lib a set. Because nothing he said made any sense. The audience reacted, not at all. (laughs) It was one of those sets, it just didn't land. He didn't finish. He literally got halfway through his last joke, gave up, jumped off the stage. I was standing at the back of the room at the bar and adam sandler walked up the aisle he made a beeline directly for me and right as he reached me he turned his head about 10 inches and hit on the woman i was with oh snap just immediately Cause, cause hit something that
0: that chicks dig more than uh, somebody bombing a set
1: now to I the to the best of my recollection he turned to her began the motions of hitting on her said a few words And she raised a hand and waved him away with something along the lines of, no, 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 no. Wow. He walked off. (laughs) Remember that? And I always thought that was funny. That's right. In your face, Sandler. (laughs) (laughs) We see who came out on top that one time. Yeah. That one time. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's funny because I I did go on to think Sandler did some pretty good work out there. I I had actually probably seen him. I think he had just started Mm -hmm. on Saturday Night Live at that point. So he was a bit part player and had done a few bits, but it was it was very early on. It was years before he made it into the film industry.
0: Well, that was that was what was cool about like the the '90s in Montreal, the comedy scene was that like really famous people came through. Like Ray Romano used to come play the comedy all the time, uh, as did Harlan Williams.
1: Um, oh, yeah. I I met Harlan Matt, a lot of times. Yeah, Norm Har- Macdonald. Like- some some people know Harlan because he was in. Uh, I mean, Harlan Williams is a famous comedian for being a comedian. And he has a couple of small parts and things, um, and even some starring roles. Mm -hmm. But he has a tiny blink-and-you'll-miss-it role in Dumb and Dumber with Jim Carrey. And the reason that's notable is because he was supposed to be the co-lead in that film. Harlan Williams was basically cast alongside Jim Carrey to be the two leads in Dumb and Dumber. And at a certain point, someone realized how famous Jim Carrey was getting. And they said, yeah, we can't pair you with some unknown comic. Mm -hmm. And in one of the most bizarre turns in history, Harlan Williams was replaced by Jeff Daniels. Logically. Very, very strange. Weird how good, how well it worked out, but... They said, get me a Harlan Williams type. Yeah. Ended up with Jeff Daniels. So I've been in the room with Harlan a few times. I I think I shot pool with him once could could be but we're going back a few years yeah,
0: there. There was there was a pool table at uh, the bar under the comedy club.
1: I remember it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that's my my little Harlan Williams brush with fame.
0: <laughs> and and
1: his little brush with fame almost in one of the most successful comedies of all time. Well, he's in it. He's got a 2-minute part as the cop who drinks a beer bottle full of uh, urine. It's probably not the uh, wonderful role he was hoping for. Huh, well. But I, but I guess he got paid.
0: I guess. I hope so. Otherwise, my union steward side has to come out and uh, file a grievance.
1: Yeah. All right. Uh, I have a couple of last questions for you. Sure thing. Was this job a stepping stone to more of a Hollywood career, or was (laughs) it just a job?
0: At the time, I guess I kind of felt like that was the way I was going. I kind of fell into uh, the industry. Uh, but considering that I am now a nurse working in research for the McGill University Health Center, I think we can all you know, guess that it was not, in fact, a stepping stone to Hollywood at all. Was it just a job? Um, I don't know. I, I've always had a a thing where I want to help people and I want to help make things right, which is you know, why I went into nursing. So in that level, no, it wasn't just a job.
1: What, if anything, brought your film career to an end?
0: Honestly... Uh, so film in Montreal, there was a real peak in, in uh, American production in particular in like 88, 80, uh, sorry, 98, 99. And it really fell off sharply after that. I'm sure there were some reasons that I don't remember what they were. So I was working for actor at the time. There was a lot less production in English and in Montreal. So essentially I got laid off. And then I had a little think about it and was like, so what do I want to do? Do I want to try and find work? Somewhere else in this kind of business, and decided, in fact, to go back to school and get an English degree. So, when I really thought about it, it's an industry where, you know, sure, if you want to be that crusader crusading for people's rights, there's a lot of stuff to do, but there's also a lot of witnessing some people treating other people really badly. And yes, that's everywhere, but there's something about the entertainment industry where people want to be there so badly and it's such a cosmetic industry, it's all based on you know what you look like and what things look like on the surface, it really allows a lot of really bad behavior. A lot of people who wanna take advantage of other people and a lot of people who are, I hate to say the word happy, but are willingly taken advantage of uh, in order to get what it is that they think they want.
1: Well, other than what sounded like a truly atrocious John McTiernan experience, <laughs> Was there anything else along those lines that might have contributed to you wanting to get out of the industry?
0: Well, I mean, there was a lot of... We used to... One of the things that we dealt with at the at the union all the time was the phenomenon of extras or background performers who really wanted to be in the union. You can't get into the union just being a background performer. You have to have, like, an acting role. Uh, so what we would deal with constantly was background performers... Calling up the office and saying, "Oh, I think I did some acting in this scene," so we actually had to put together a committee where we would review the footage for these things over and over again. Stuff like that, where people don't want to put in the work and go to acting school, they just want to be an actor because they were on set. There's a lot of entitled behavior that was really, really irritating. You know, we get to pick on the background performers where we would get these phone calls saying, "You know, oh, everybody else got this buffet with three choices and we only got lasagna." When you deal with that kind of stuff over and over again, it's really kind of leaves a bitter taste in your mouth. And I think maybe the funniest way to wrap this up was, uh, this is before I worked for the union, but when I was film doing film crew for The Hunger, literally the last scene that I worked on was an orgy scene in hell, which I think sums up a lot of that. Also at that time, the first assistant director and the line producer were having some argument and wouldn't speak to each other. And so the producer comes up to me. I'm like the third assist, I'm a trainee. I know nothing. Comes up to me and he's like, is uh, the first lady mad at me? He's not talking to me. I'm like, why do I have to be everyone's mom? Like this, no, this is terrible. So yeah, now I get to be everybody's mom in a different way.
1: Any final thoughts or experiences with the celebrities that crossed your path? Or is there anything you'd like to touch on that has to do with our illustrious Montreal cinema scene or the comedy scene?
0: I mean, there probably are that I've like, you know, locked in the vault or just forgotten about because I'm old now. Um, but I guess to round it up, to end things on a, on a very nice note, uh, my one regret of all the things, all the people that I almost met and whatever, my, my one regret, uh, one year I was at Just for Laughs wandering around the Delta and who was waiting for an elevator but Jerry Orbach. I don't know why he was there. Uh, and my biggest regret is that I did not go up to him and tell him that he was awesome. And I I regret that to this day because he really was.